Cats Chapter 4 Richard and Paige, both in sunglasses, and dressed in the kind of casual wear that looks good on safari, bumped down a dirt road in an expensive sports car. Above them massive electrical pylons look like a long row of iron men holding power cables over their heads. In the middle of the Sierra Plateau, a hundred feet from one of the metal giants, and a hundred feet below the dozens of cables it carries, there's a wood shack. Richard and Paige restored it. Dr. Wilde, 70, white-haired and grandfatherly, is dressed in a white lab coat. He's seated in an expensive chair, at an expensive desk, in a spacious office that features floor-to-ceiling windows covered by thick curtains that offer him some privacy in what amounts to an expensive fishbowl. His computer screen shows a satellite picture of the sports car, the pylons, and the shack. He is speaking to Colonel White on speakerphone. Arizona? Did we know Eddie had a lab there? It's not in our files. Well, get down there. Check out the site. Bring Richard and his girlfriend back. I want to know how they knew something that we didn't. I'm on my way. How long? I can be there in four hours. Maybe six. That's ridiculous. Why so long? You want them alive? If you want them dead, I can just heal on a sniper. If you want them alive, I'll need a couple of dozen guys because they'll try to run. Also I need state police support to close the roads and take them if they get around us. Sadly, that takes a few hours to set up. Let's avoid all police involvement. Then I'll need even more men. Fine. And don't screw this up like you did the brother. Richard and Paige step out of the car and stare at the structure they have driven more than a thousand miles to see. It looks to be nothing more than a shed. It has a porch but no windows. Just old wood walls, a battered door, and a shale roof that looks likely to leak. That was a big map for such a little building. Richard steps onto the dilapidated porch, walks to the door, and tries the handle. It turns. Richard and Paige look around. In one room there's an iron cot, an electric coffee pot and a hot plate. A half-open door shows an awkwardly placed toilet crammed up against a sink that sits under a broken mirror. Richard opens the door to a back room. The walls and ceiling and floor are covered with newsprint, thumbtacks, black lines and red writing. There are stacks of yellow drawings everywhere. Page reviews news articles with headlines like UFOs sighted over Seattle, death ray shoots down plane, crop circles explained. It is like walking into a madman's mind. Richard shakes his head, turns around, and walks back out the front door. Paige joins Richard who is now sitting on the porch studying the desert vista around him. I wonder why I'm here. I never wanted Eddie's insanity to be part of my life when he was alive. Why would I want it now that he's dead? Why didn't you tell me about him? And don't give me that crap that you didn't speak. But we didn't. Not for a very long time. I'm remembering him. He was brilliant. So facile. Such a lateral thinker. Like you? No. Compared to Eddie I have always been a second-class mind. I'm very rigid. I want the right answer and I always think there's only one. But Eddie came up with answers to questions I never even thought to ask. That no one ever asked. He would tell me that there's an infinite set of right answers and I could see them all if I would just stop looking for only one. Richard reaches into his pocket, pulls out a cube, holds it in the palm of his hand. Richard examines the cube from every angle as he speaks. I don't know what question this is the answer to. And that is beginning to bug me. My dad was a lead engineer on a successor to the Manhattan Project. There was a successor? He was working to take nukes into space to power exploration. But his work got moved to the military shortly after my mother died. He lost faith in himself, his country, humanity. He had to know what he was building and who he was working for. Dad and his friends saw their work as an engineering problem. Assumed everyone shared their vision. Finding out they were wrong hit hard. Dad became obsessed with terrestrial power plants. 
He wanted to build something that didn't require uranium or plutonium. Something that helped people. Something even the poorest countries could own. He tried to execute what should have been a trillion-dollar project on the cheap, moving from place to place around the country, working with underground teams of men just like him. Since our mother had died, and we had no one else, he took Eddie and I along for the ride. Dad gave us his version of an education. We taught one another ciphers and codes so we could talk without being heard. So what happened? One day, there's an explosion. A fire. Nine people die including my dad. I was 13, Eddie was 9. We became wards of the state. Needless to say we got into college. We were always at odds after the accident so we went to different schools, chose to live different lives. Your brother wanted to continue your dad's work. My brother would never make a weapon. Never. It was antithetical to everything he was. Everything he stood for. Richard stops. Shakes his head. He rises, slips the cube into his pocket, and walks back into the shack. Paige goes to the car, pops the trunk, pulls out a pair of sleeping bags, walks into the house and closes the door. Hours later Richard and Paige are sleeping. She is on the narrow cot. He is on the floor. All the papers from the back room are scattered around them because they have been read over and over again. Richard's eyes fly open as metal scrapes against metal. Paige sits up as the sound comes again. From the bathroom the sheep emerges. Large, misshapen, shuffling, with twin lights where eyes should be. The light flicks on. Oscar, looking just as homeless as he did days ago, has his hand on the switch. His head wears a construction hat with twin high beam halogen lamps mounted on it. I heard someone up here. Thought it might be you. What are you doing here? Richard and Paige scramble to their feet. Richard walks past Oscar to look into the bathroom. The wall, the mirror, and sink are mounted to a thick door. It now opens onto a stairway that leads down into darkness. I come out here when I'm low on cash. It's dry and there's a bunch of food stockpiled. Eddie didn't mind. You heard us? From where? Downstairs. Oscar moves back into the bathroom, through the door, and out onto the stairs. Watch your step. It's a long way down. Richard and Paige follow him onto to the stairs. Oscar reaches past them to close the door. There's the sound of metal against metal in the suck of a rubber steel engaging, as if the door is a hatch on a boat. Oscar leads them down a staircase which trembles with every step. The only light source is on his helmet and he is only looking down at the stairs. Around them there is only pitch black darkness. The staircase is shaking. Polymer plastic. Sturbo. Non-conductive. But more give them steel. Perfectly safe. At least for one person. I never tried three. Maybe we should spread out a bit to relieve stress on the joints. Richard and Paige stop. Oscar gets a few steps ahead. Then Paige follows them and Richard follows her. I think the biggest risk is sleeping under the rail. The stairs are not really OSHA compliant. He pauses to look at the side of the step. There's a three-foot gap between the stair and the handrail. On the other side of the rail there is only darkness. Oscar begins descending again. Paige clutches both rails like they are lifelines, and follows him. Richard follows her. I think you should have all this stuff ripped out, now that Eddie is gone. The copper is worth a lot. You can sell it for scrap. Do you want me to help you? How much farther? Oscar turns to look up at her, as the headlamps on his head sweep the space. Something horrifying is illuminated for a split second. Something very big, very black, with many arms. Are you getting tired? Oscar, look to your left. Oscar looks off the side of the staircase. It's a very large, very ugly industrial explosion frozen in time. Long, arm-thick, black cables whip around them in every direction. A few have cracked to show a bright red copper core. Far off, at the center of what looks like a nest, 
something insectoid juts up. Near them a pair of wires have split and the fragments look like snapping hydra heads. Jesus. Oscar looks down, unconcerned. I think it's another 200 feet? 20 stories? Maybe a little more. Paige sits down on a step, clutching the rails to steady herself. I don't think I can do this. The stairway shivers and Oscar's lamp moves farther away. Richard pulls out his phone, presses a button. It emits as much light as a flashlight. He focuses it on the steps illuminating the huge gap beneath the guardrail and the top of every step. Yes you can. We need to get down. Just focus on the steps. Don't worry about anything else. Your brother was so crazy. Yes he was. Paige and Richard eventually exit the shaft through a steel screen door that looks like it belongs in a prison or mine. They follow a short flight of metal steps into a control room covered by a metal mesh that separates them from the chamber they were just in. The light on Oscar's mining hat illuminates control panels and meters in a ten-foot sliding steel door that opens into a rock quarter. Richard gestures at the madness above them. When did that happen? Few years back. Was anyone killed this time? Reinforced concrete walls contained it. There was a fire, but extinguishers put it out. Not so bad. A fluorescent light over a workbench flickers on. Then a second one, as Richard... Oscar, and Paige, look around. All the lights come up, the equipment in the room is dusty, black, antiquated. There is a panel of big circuit breakers along one wall. They are all thrown off. Voice activated. You must sound like Eddie. Crap. Paige is backing away from a blocky metal six-legged insect, about the size of a cat, that's entered the chamber through the door to the corridor. Its spine appears to be a long metal rod. It has two prehensile metal hands near where its mouth should be. But it doesn't have a mouth. It moves stiffly, as if it thinks very slowly and needs lots of oil. Oscar turns to Richard. That's spot. There's another one. Page point. A shoebox-sized bug enters the control room through the door they just used. But it's walking on the ceiling, metal hooks engaging with the mesh one step at a time. Sheila must have crawled in while I was hiking up. Sheila, smaller and faster than Spot, has walked down the walls to stand on the floor. She has a camera where her face should be, and all eight of her feet can grip. Stop. At Oscar's order the bug stops. He reaches down to scoop it up. He hands it to Richard. This is prototype 9. Where are the other 8? Paige is looking around the room with some concern as Richard explores the bug in his hands. You and Eddie built all this? We had lots of guys. Back then we had lots of funding. When the money dried up they had to go. But Eddie still used the lab sometimes. He kept me until last. Paige walks toward an ancient computer system embedded in one of the control consoles. She pushes a key on a keyboard and it flickers to life. A password screen pops up. What do I type? Harvester. The computer beeps and flashes no connection. Eddie never kept his data here. It was always kept off-site. Richard looks up to the dark chamber above him. He is trying to see through the mesh to the machine that failed. Is there a way to turn on lights in there? Sounds of movement come from far above them. Steps that sound like rain. Banging. What's that? I don't know. Sounds like we have more company up in the ship. Did you bring anyone with you? No. But whoever it is, I don't think they are friendly. Then we need to go. It will take them a few minutes to figure out what's going on. And then... There's a huge explosion and debris rains down. Richard looks up and sees a light high above him. A moment later, it starts a slow descent falling straight down like a blue star. The light is attached to a man on a cable. Then another illuminated man starts to fall, and another. The falling lights illuminate the monster's still-life explosion of thick copper cable. It's just possible to make out a multi-story ant-like shape at the center, have its head gone, and one of its six arms blown off. 
Richard moves to close the steel door between the chamber and the control room. Is there a way to lock this gate? We have to stop them from getting down here. Oscar walks over to the circuit breakers. One by one they start switching them on. This triggers a hum so loud and low it echoes in the heart. Above them rivers of electrical light start running along the mass of broken cables, and the ant-like figure becomes more visible. It starts to shift its position, and the wires around it begin to weave. The explosion stopped years ago is beginning again. Oscar looks at Richard and Paige. No, we should go. What did you just do? Inside the cylinder doll's new globe begins. The home is becoming a pounding pulse that shakes the walls. The wires inside the cage are twisting as if looking for something. The half dozen men on ropes inside the cage have stopped their descent and are looking everywhere for a way out. This won't be pretty. Richard is transfixed. The wires start to whip. We aren't safe here. Run. The machine inside the silo is now lighting wildly. Cables are flying, and one smashes hard on the screen that protects them. Richard turns and follows Oscar and Paige into the tunnel. The mechanical repair insects attracted to him exit as well. A coil of wire lifts through the control room. The lights go out. Oscar, Paige and Richard run up the tunnel past stockpiles of food, broken equipment, long coils of wire. The only illumination comes from the disaster going on behind them and Oscar's headlamp. The ground is littered with pieces of metal, tools, and chunks of rock. A heavy pulse beats through the facility with increasing speed and strength. Paige trips over a bar and falls hard on one knee. Oscar, who has been pulling her pulse, helps her up. Richard looks back toward the explosion. In the flashes he sees an attacker running down a tunnel. He is the one with an electric blue tip in his hand. Richard steps into the darkness near a giant pool of wire. When the attacker races past, Richard takes him down. He throws himself into the man's side, hurling him into the ground. The one goes flying. The battle instantly becomes a hand-to-hand -hand fight which Richard swiftly finds he is losing. Richard snatches at the man's face and catches his mask. Just in back, he exposes the face of his attacker. White hair, bright blue eyes. Richard pinned to the ground, hands scrabbling in the dirt, finds something sharp. A screwdriver? Without thinking, he jams the metal rod into Colonel White's side. As White's hands move to the injury, Richard shoves him off and away. Then Richard is on his feet and running. A twist, a turn, a race through the now crumbling tunnel finds Richard barreling out into the Arizona moonlight. An ancient green truck sits just outside the steel barn doors that must normally seal the tunnel. It's already running. Richard jumps in the truck bed and the vehicle sets out driving up a cliffside road that leads to the top of the mesa. The ground shakes with every pulse. As the truck reaches the top of the mesa, Richard can see the huge power pylon bending toward a gaping hole where the shack used to be. Out of the hole, black wires are reaching up, wrapping themselves around the electric cables the pylon holds. Long tendrils of lightning strike the pylon, the cables, the remains of Richard's car and the half-dozen black utility vehicles parked nearby. Men in black are running away across the moonlit desert plain. Richard settles back in the truck bed and closes his eyes. As the sky begins to lighten in the east, it is possible to see that Eddie's machine, the power pylon, and the power cables are fused into a twisted burning wall. Circuit by Nancy Fulton. Story and voice copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Produced by AudioIron.com.